Our Father, we do thank you that you have sent your Son to take our place, to pay the penalty that we deserved, to take our unrighteousness, that we might be counted righteous. Father, we are in awe and we simply sing hallelujah. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That you, the Father, would give of your Son. That you, Jesus, would come and take our place for us. And that you, Spirit, would apply his work to each one of us. And we ask now that you would please guide us by your word, that you'd open our minds and hearts to receive what you have for us in the scriptures this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, it's always amazing to me that there are those who call themselves Christians and yet they do not follow what Jesus says or indeed they take positions and hold to doctrinal affirmations that Jesus directly contradicted. For example, there are those who call themselves Christians who have said that Jesus is all about love while the God of the Old Testament is all about wrath. As if the God of the Old Testament never talked about love and as if Jesus never spoke any words of wrath. But have they never read where Jesus spoke words of wrath like in Matthew 23, 32 in which speaking to the Pharisees he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Of course, Jesus also reveals what his father is like. He's not just a God of wrath. He says he's one who is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Or there's other Christians who say that Adam and Eve didn't actually exist. And yet Jesus references them as the basis for his argument for marriage in Matthew 19. Or other Christians that even most recently have taught that our faith needs to be unhinged from the Old Testament and that we need to only focus on the New Testament. But again, what did Jesus teach? Is this the view of Jesus, our Messiah? Did he teach that the faith of his followers was to be unhinged, unhooked, unmoored from the Old Testament? We see that as we go through the Gospels, he based his message almost entirely on the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers, he regularly upheld Moses and the prophets. He quoted from the Psalms. In fact, the refrain of his ministry was, have you not read? Expecting that they were to read everything that we know of as the Old Testament. And therefore, because he, Jesus, had a high view of the Old Testament, what would you expect his followers, the early church, the apostles, to do? They based their faith, they based their evangelism, they based their ministry on the Old Testament, on what was written. In fact, Paul wasn't unanchored or unhinged from the Old Testament. He was anchored in it. And so there's this possibility, this reality that we see that there's those who follow, claim to follow Jesus and they don't listen to him as the teacher. They don't follow what he said. And we don't want to be in that category this morning. And so we need to listen carefully to the teaching of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who interprets the Bible faithfully, truthfully, and accurately. And we want our lives to align with what he says. Last week, we began to look at a passage that showed Jesus as the authoritative teacher of the Bible. He outgunned the other religious uh, leaders and authorities who were vying for that position of the authoritative one the authoritative interpreters of the Bible, and Jesus showed that he indeed was superior. And so today we're going to continue and pick up where we left off last week and continue on in that passage. But I invite you to turn there with me if you're not there already to Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 44. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 44. In this section of scripture, there's two exchanges one initiated by the Sadducees, another initiated by Jesus. But in both of these exchanges, Jesus is expositing Scripture. He's looking back to the Old Testament to give his argument and showing that he, not the Jewish leadership, understood what the Scriptures really held. And so this 
our passage is going to continue to show how Jesus is God's spokesman. But let's read our text for us this morning. Luke chapter 20, follow along as I read, starting in verse 27. It says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. And afterward the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Then Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, and all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? As we started last week, we're going to see in this passage two demonstrations of Jesus' superiority as the authoritative Bible teacher. We're going to see as he, as he silences his critics that he is indeed the superior Bible teacher. And you and I need this today because, again, we need to listen to the voice of Jesus. We need to follow him and to walk in the truth that he taught. And so let's, again, look at this first demonstration that we began last week in his superiority as authoritative Bible teacher when he taught on, first of all, the reality of the resurrection. He taught on the reality of the resurrection. And this is in verses 27 through 40. And again, we're just going to briefly review what we covered last week. In this passage, he teaches on the afterlife because of a question from the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a sect of Judaism that taught there was no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit. As Acts 23 verse 6 tells us. Here Luke tells us that they, don't, they deny there's a resurrection, verse 27. And so they believe that when someone died, they simply ceased to exist. They didn't continue on as a spirit. They wouldn't be resurrection. This life is essentially all that there is. And so they take that truth and try to trap Jesus and discredit him by pulling out an absurd scenario. And so we saw, first of all, in this teaching, uh, in this section, the trap in verses 28 through 33. This trap was formed upon, well, to us today is kind of an obscure law found in Deuteronomy 25, a law called the law of leveret marriage. And based upon this law, the Sadducees came up with an absurd scenario, a hypothetical situation, where seven brothers ended up marrying the same woman in succession after they each die in turn. The scenario is absurd, but again, it's crafted for a particular reason. It's to drive home a point, which they make, look at it in verse 33. After they give all the specifics, they say, verse 33, in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Surely a woman can't be married to seven men, and so in the resurrection, they're all alive. Who is she to be married to? It seemed crazy and absurd, and therefore the resurrection in their, in their reasoning is crazy and absurd. But Jesus is not going to be trapped. And so we, see, we saw not only the trap, but we saw the teaching. Jesus goes on to say, okay, you want to put this forward? You want to talk about the resurrection? Well, let's talk about the resurrection. You guys are wrong. You don't get it. And so Jesus begins to teach in verses 34 through 40. The problem with the Sadducees' reasoning is that they assumed that everything that takes place here is, is going to carry over into the next age. They assumed too much continuity between this life and the next. They thought marriage would be like it was before death. And so Jesus corrects these false teachers. 
Now, as he goes on and teaches about the resurrection in response to the Sadducees, his purpose here is not to give a systematic theology on everything about the afterlife, everything about heaven, heaven everything about what will take place in, uh, in those final days. But from what he teaches here, as we began to see, there's some things we can glean out of this. There's some truth that we need to hear about heaven, about the resurrection, about our future life in eternity. And so we began to look at eight different truths from Jesus' teaching here that we can glean about the eternal state. And again, this is important for us because people can be confused about what comes after death. In fact, even Christians can be somewhat puzzled and hazy on exactly what the Bible teaches regarding what's coming, what what faces us after death. But the Bible is very clear about what awaits believers and unbelievers. And so we can need to glean some of these things from Jesus' teaching here. Let's review just again the first four that we looked at last week. The first truth that we gleaned from Jesus' teaching here is that, number one, there is a future age. There is a future age. The Sadducees taught some form of annihilationism that, that everything would just come to an end. But Jesus is saying, no. People don't cease to exist. There is an age to come. The life here is not all that there is. But the second truth that we saw is that in order to enter, you must be considered worthy. Verse 35. He says that there are those who are considered worthy to attain to that age. Now that age is particularly referring to the, the age of the new heavens and the new earth. The, the age of, 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 of heaven and eternity with God. And so by saying that those, there are those who are considered worthy to attain, he's implicitly saying that there are those who are considered worthy and there are those who are not. Those who are, who are worthy to enter eternal life, who are they? How does someone become considered worthy to obtain? Is it by performing enough religious deeds? Going to church enough? Giving money to God? No. Being considered worthy to obtain to that future age to enter eternal life with God in heaven forever is not based upon any of our deeds. We do not do enough good things and then we get the gold star for our good deeds. Rather, Jesus earned the gold star. Jesus did it all and he shares the gold star with all who place their faith in him so that when we show up at heaven's gate we have a gold star and it's not anything that we've earned it's all that Jesus has earned and yet we get to share in the righteousness that he has attained to it's his perfect life his sacrificial death that gets credited to believers account friends we are counted worthy only because of what our Savior did for us. And so hallelujah, what a Savior, amen? Man, it's amazing. But there's a third truth about the eternal state that we glean from this passage, and that is that you will enter that eternal state through resurrection. You will enter through resurrection. And we looked at this last week, that he says that they're counted worthy not only to attain to that age, verse 35, but to the resurrection from the dead. This, in other words, Jesus implicitly says, Sadducees, you're wrong. There is a resurrection. It's going to happen. And this means that those who are looking to enter that future eternal state, it's going to be through a resurrection. And this means, friends, that your final destination for believers in heaven, in our final glorified state, is a physical one. It's not just that we're floating around as souls or spirits. No, we're being resurrected to flesh and blood, to a body. Just like Jesus was resurrected to a body after his resurrection, so we too will have a body, but it'll be glorified. And so our bodies will be redeemed and resurrected. We do not have a view of the body that says, listen, this is just a vehicle. It gets shed, it dies, it rots, and we move on. No, God has a plan for our bodies as well. And this is our hope. We look forward to this resurrection. We cling to Christ because through him we will know eternal life and we will live resurrected unto him. In fact, it was the resurrection that drove the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, Paul says this, that I may know him, that's Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you notice the similar language? 
Jesus talked about attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And here Paul says he lives and so that by any means possible, he might attain to that resurrection. That was the hope that drove him. Our hope of the resurrection should drive our faith and our ministry as well. But the fourth truth that we looked at last week that we can glean from these verses is that marriage will not exist in the eternal state. Marriage will not exist in eternity. And this is the point of the opponent's question. They had wondered about marriage and this is where uh, Jesus replies and says that, that those who reach that, that, that future age uh, neither marry nor are given in marriage, verse 35. Neither marry nor are given in marriage. And so Jesus teaches that marriage is something that passes away with this age. It will not carry into the next. And as we talked about last week, even though it may be hard to imagine no longer being married in heaven to our beloved spouse, we need to remember that God is not going to shortchange us. God has only greater and better things planned for us. He will not give us less than we have now. He will give us far, far more. We will spend eternity with, your, with our spouses if we both know Christ. Paul revealed in Ephesians 5 that marriage is what? It's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And in that sense, marriage here gives us just a taste of the joy and the intimacy that we will experience with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. So let us ensure this morning that we are found in Christ. What is going to be eternal? It's the marriage between Christ and his bride. We need to see that we are found in Jesus this morning and that we will one day partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb for as the angel said in Revelation chapter 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And truly, you are invited today. The invitation goes out to all the nations and continues to do so day after day that the nations might turn to Christ and to know that they are invited to trust and to believe in Jesus, that they might partake in that future celebration. Now, we only made it to this fourth point last week, so let's now continue on and, and give the fifth truth about the eternal state that we can glean from this teaching. And that is number five, death cannot touch us in that future state. Death cannot touch us. Verse 36, he begins to introduce the reasons for why. Why is there no marriage? Well, his first reason, verse 36, look at it with me. He says, for they cannot die anymore. He doesn't just say that they will not die. He says that they, they cannot die. They cannot die. We, it's, it's impossible that believers will be able to die once they are resurrected. And again, this is because of the resurrection, because of the, the radical work that God is going to do to our bodies through the resurrection, death will be taken off the table. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 and 53. He says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body will, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Perishable to imperishable. Mortality to immortality. This is the promise of the resurrection. Death will not be able to touch us. Oh, for that day when death will be no more. And this is what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 25. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people will be taken away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Now John, the apostle, was able to see a vision of this prophecy being fulfilled in a future day as he recorded in Revelation 21. It says that he heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Friends, we keep our sights set upon that hope that death will be destroyed. It, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 says it's the last enemy to be destroyed and it will be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20 verse 14. And so church, this should cause us to praise our Savior Jesus Christ. That he is the one who has enabled us to to participate in this future joy, to this future state in which death will be no more. Paul 
in 1 Corinthians 15, after talking about the, 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 the accomplishment and the glories of the resurrection, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Indeed, our hearts should turn to praise as well as we see what, what God accomplishes for us in the resurrection. But the sixth truth that we can glean from this passage in Jesus' teaching on the eternal state is, number six, we will be like the angels. We will be like the angels. Kind of a curious point Jesus says here, verse 36, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now it's important to note that when Jesus says this, it does not mean that we all turn into angels, that we, you know, as was, has come through the imagination through the centuries, that we get a, a white robe and we float around with wings on our back and we have a little harp. We are, not turned, we are not turned into angels. We are indeed are humans. We are made in the image of God. We are different beings than the angels. And we're distinctive. But here, Jesus says there's a certain similarity that we will have in that future day. And our likeness to angels includes two aspects. One is that angels can't die and therefore believers won't be able to die either. But secondly, because they don't die, because angels, that is, don't die, they don't need to procreate. And neither will human beings in that day. Because there will be no death in that age, humanity will not need to propagate its race any longer. Now we know that there are other purposes for marriage besides procreation, companionship and, and joy and all the rest, but let us not forget that one of the key purposes that God created marriage is for procreation. This is why in the Garden of Eden, before sin had even entered the world, God gave the commission to our first parents to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. This is inherently baked into marriage as God designed it. Unfortunately, our society has largely lost this. They want to separate procreation and marriage, separation, procreation and sexual union. And marriage is, is seen more in the context of self-fulfillment. And so therefore, because of this change of view of marriage, children, the fruit of a couple's union, are viewed either as optional accessories or inconvenient necessities or unwanted hindrances. But friends, the church of Christ must always hold procreation as one of God's purposes for marriage in this age. But as Jesus says, in that age, it won't be needed anymore. And therefore, there will be no need for procreation. Therefore, we are like the angels. But there's a seventh truth that we can glean from this passage. And that is our adoption will be made complete in the resurrection. Our adoption will be made complete in the resurrection. Believer, I, I trust that you know that you are adopted into the family of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, you now cry, Abba, Father, you are a child of God. But there's a sense in which our adoption is not yet complete. Jesus says here in this passage that they're they are equal to the angels and are sons of God. They are sons of God and there's something about our sonship to God that will be finalized in the resurrection and we await for that. You see there's some that try, again that, that think about the salvation of our soul is the only thing that matters and we think of only of the spiritual not of the physical and in that it can communicate this this view that our bodies are worthless. That this, God doesn't really care about the flesh and blood our bodies they're just going to be discarded, never to see, be seen again. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there is a redemption waiting for our bodies. Because we are sons of God, we are children of God, and therefore we will partake in the resurrection. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and this is a, a key verse for helping us to understand how our bodies fit in with this hope of, of, of redemption. Paul says this in Romans 8, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Do you see that there is a, when you think about, we wait eagerly for adoption, and you go, Paul, we've already been adopted. We're already in the family of God. And yet he, he says, well, what I'm talking about is the redemption of our bodies. Waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And this redemption we don't see now. We know it's going to come in that future age when the resurrection comes, when Christ returns. And so because we don't see it, we wait for it with patience. We also, as Paul says, we groan inwardly. This, is, this groan is the, is the weight of living in a fallen world in which things are lost, things are destroyed, things deteriorate, things die, both physical things and relationships. And there's, there's death and decay that is part of this world because it's fallen. And so we groan inwardly. We wait for that day when everything will be changed and everything will be made right and everything will be better. And we feel it even in our bones. But we know that because we are children of God, we eagerly await the adoption of sons and, as sons and the redemption of our bodies. So church, your, your adoption is not complete yet. It's going to be made complete on that resurrection day when your body is redeemed and transformed. And we need to place our hope in that. But there's an eighth and final truth for us to glean out of Jesus' teaching here in this passage about the eternal state. And that is, until our resurrection, we live unto God. Until our resurrection, we live unto God. And we see this in verses 37 and 38. Now it's in these verses that Jesus goes for the sucker punch to the Sadducees. And he seeks to answer you know, they deny the resurrection and they set up this whole absurd scenario in order to trap Jesus. And he seeks to one-up them, to teach them, to put them in their place by turning to, the, to Moses. And you'll remember that the Sadducees, uh, while they didn't throw out the rest of the Old Testament, they primarily respected the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And, and so they... Jesus here wisely turns to Moses to answer their own objections and say, oh, okay, you don't believe in the resurrection. Well, let me turn to the scriptures that you turn to, that you see as authoritative yourself. And he did this by pointing to the passage of the burning bush. Look at verse 37 with me. He says, but that the dead are raised... Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now in this time, they didn't have, uh, the, the Bible wasn't broken up into chapters and verses like it is today. And that's important to know. Our Bibles, we have chapters and verses and they've been like that for hundreds of years now. But those chapters and verses are not inspired. They uh, were added in by editors later on through the years. And so where those chapters break and all the rest is not necessarily uh, divinely given by God. They're helpful for us. That's why we can all find a verse. I can have you turn to a chapter and a verse and whatnot. But uh, so in this day, Jesus couldn't say turn to Exodus chapter 3. Or, you know, in, the, in that place in Exodus chapter 3, he has to reference a, uh, the account to, to jog the memory. And so that's why he says in the passage about the bush. And everyone go, oh yeah, I know that passage. I know that passage. And for us, we, it is found in our Bibles in Exodus chapter 3. Particularly in verse 6, where it says, on the mouth of Yahweh, the Lord, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now why does Jesus, Jesus reference this verse? It's because his argument all hinges on the tense of a verb. The tense of a verb. Grammar matters. And here, it's the Lord revealed that he had a, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He did not say, I was their God. 
You know, back when they lived, I was their God. He's saying that today, in the time of Moses, which, remember, is hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he says, today, Moses, I still am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he's saying that he has a present relationship with those men. At the time of Moses, hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God, Yahweh, is revealing that he there at the time of Moses has a present relationship with those who, according to earthly terms, was already dead. And how does this relate to resurrection? It's this. It means that those men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have not ceased to exist, but they were still alive in some way to God. And that's why Jesus says, verse 38, look at it with me. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. God is God of the living, not of the dead. And this tells us that those who die upon this earth, that they continue to live in some way. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob remained potential candidates for resurrection because they still existed. If they had died and ceased to exist, if God was no longer their God, then they would not be resurrected. But because he had a present relationship with them, both in the time of Moses and in Jesus' day, they were candidates for resurrection. Resurrection remains in their future. Death did not erase that certainty. And so Jesus adds that all live to him. And I believe this communicates that every human being ex it continues to exist after they die. Souls are immortal. Soul, every soul is immortal. And as we looked at last week, that's because even though the righteous will be resurrected unto life, so too the wicked will be resurrected unto death and judgment. Resurrection awaits everybody. It's just a question of the destination and that is determined by what someone does with Jesus in this life and this age. So what does this mean for us? It tells us that when we die, we will live unto God while we await our resurrection. There's a present heaven where those who pass away now will ascend to that heaven. And there's a present hell where those who die now will descend to, but both believers and unbelievers will be resurrected one day to either inhabit the new heavens and new earth or the lake of fire. The current condition of souls in heaven and hell is only, get this, a temporary intermediate state. And so church, we set our hope on our eternal home. It's one that we will inhabit after our resurrection. The new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with God. We do not cease to exist. We continue to live unto God and we await that final resurrection just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were doing and are doing now. So we've seen here in this teaching on the reality of the resurrection, the trap, the teaching, and now let's look thirdly at the response in verses 39 through 40. The response in verses 39 through and 40. It says, verse 39, Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. You have spoken well. The scribes are not associated with the Sadducees, but rather the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were in competition with one another up until Jesus showed up on the scene, and ultimately him, he will unite them. But here, I believe that the scribes, the friends of the Pharisees, where he says, You've spoken well. It's these, the, let's remember that the scribes and the Pharisees still hate Jesus. They're not suddenly going, wow, he's got a point. I might follow him. No, they still hate Christ. And so they're essentially saying, finally, you said something right. Finally, you, 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 you said something that was correct. And so they praise him in a certain way. But verse 40 tells us, that ultimately Jesus' answer shut down their questions. It says, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. And in this sense, Jesus comes out as the victor in this theological tournament. Jesus here proved that he was the authoritative teacher of the word of God as it relates to the reality of the resurrection. But Jesus isn't done. He's now 
going to bring his, uh, going to bring his opponents back to the scriptures. He's going to point to another passage and he's going to force the issue about what they believe about him. And that leads us to our second demonstration about Jesus' authoritative ministry. We've seen as he taught on the reality of the resurrection, but secondly, the divinity of David's son. The divinity of David's son. Friends, everything comes back to Jesus Christ. There may be doctrinal differences, and we've seen through Luke 20 that they've debated about how do we relate to Caesar and, and all sorts of different things, but, and in the resurrection, and, and, but here Jesus brings it back to the fulcrum point. The question is, who is Jesus, and will you accept and believe in him as he presents himself? And that's why Jesus brings them back here. In verses 41 through 44, we see Jesus going on the offense. And this is important for us to look at this morning because have you ever heard someone say that, uh, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. Yeah, theologians later attached that label to him and said he was God, but Jesus never said that from his lips. He's just a man, they say, and, and that there's no claim to deity found in the Gospels. Or maybe more personally this morning, you have even some own personal doubts in your own heart. You've heard maybe all your life that Jesus is both man and God and, and, and you've heard that to be true but you're wondering where does the Bible teach that? Does, that te does he teach that? And you're just not sure where the scriptures support it. Well, these verses are one place you can go. There's many. This morning we just have time to look at these ones but along with the parallels found in the other gospels they, they give us a strong evidence of Jesus' self-consciousness that he knew that he was indeed the Lord. He was God. Verse 41 shows us Jesus taking initiative for the first time. So you picture Jesus, he's there on the Temple Mount, and his adversaries continue to circle. They're, they're, they're moving in, and every once in a while, one steps forward and tries to give an attack. Jesus parries the blow. And then another one steps in to give another attack, and he parries that blow. And it continues until they're silenced, as verse 40 told us. And so Jesus then steps forward with his single blow. And it goes right at the core issue. Who do you believe the Messiah to be? And again, this is a good reminder that even though there are many people today that want to test Jesus, they want to put Jesus on the trial stand and back him into a corner, at the end of the day, Jesus is able to answer every objection and he will turn the tables on every individual. He will have the final say. Everyone will have to face him as judge. He'll put everyone to the test. And so let's look first of all in verse 41, the setup question that Jesus asks. As he teaches on the divinity of David's son here, verse 41 he says, he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? How can they say that Christ is David's son? Now, who is he speaking to? Verse 41 says, he said to them. Who's the them? Well, in immediate context, verse 39, it seems to be the scribes. I think that aligns with uh, what Matthew's gospel says, which is that it was the Pharisees that he spoke to. And as we said, the scribes and Pharisees are aligned with one another. And he asked them a simple question. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? The Christ, Christos in the Greek, it means Messiah, the anointed one. When we say Jesus, we use the term Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name, it's a title. It says, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. Now it was clear from the Old Testament, and we don't, we don't, we're just, we could go in a bunch of different places to show that the Messiah was prophesied to be a descendant of David, King David. 2 Samuel 7, where God made a promise with uh, David, the Davidic covenant as we called it, as we call it, that one of David's descendants would sit upon the throne. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says that the Messiah uh, would come from Jesse, David's father. And Jeremiah 23 verse 5 says this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. These Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah would come from the line of David were undisputed. 
they all believed that he would come from the line of David. And Jesus here, this is important to note, Jesus is not denying that. There are some that like to point to these verses and say, see, Jesus denied his Davidic lineage. It's not true. He's simply saying, my Davidic lineage is not enough. He's pressing them to think deeper about who the Messiah is. Listen, he goes, listen, all of you Jewish scholars, you've studied the Bible. You claim to know the scriptures and you all know that he's David's son. But have you thought deeper about what the scriptures say about me? You see, they thought they had the Messiah figured out. He's, he's a man who's going to show up. He will come from the line of David and for them, he was there to serve their simple, carnal, nationalistic desires. Simply free them from Rome and they can live in the glory age. So when Jesus asks this question, he's not asking, how can the Messiah be a descendant of David? That was very clear from the Old Testament. But he's asking, how can the Messiah be under the authority of David? How can you say that David is the authority over the Messiah? As sonship implied. Normally, right, a father has authority over his son. And so how can the Messiah be the son of David? And have David have authority over the Messiah? But we know, who's God the greater authority, David or the Messiah? The Messiah, Jesus does, right? So, Jesus is pressing the, the issue and he turns to the scriptures. And this is what we want to see this morning. And so, let's look now at the expert expo exposition. Jesus goes to open the Bible and to teach them from the book of Psalms. In verses 42 and 43, he notes that David himself recognized that the authority of the Messiah, that the, the Messiah had authority over him, David. And he quotes Psalm 10, 110, verse 1. In this psalm, David is the speaker. The first Lord that we meet, it says, the Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord refers to Yahweh, God the Father. The second Lord, my Lord, there in the verse, is the Messiah. And so David, the author of this psalm, uh, records a statement from the Father to the Son that says, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In this quotation, we see two ways that David declares the superiority of the Messiah. How is the Messiah greater than David? First of all, because of his exalted title. His exalted title. What does David call him? He calls him, my Lord. My Lord. Even back around 1000 BC, David recognized the exalted lordship of the Messiah. And so when Jesus was born, he didn't become Lord. He was already Lord. You'll remember the words that maybe you'll see on a Christmas card that from Luke 2 verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, Lord at thy birth as we sing in the carol, right? And so we see the exalted title of the Messiah. David called the Messiah Lord. That's the first way we see the Messiah's superiority over David. But the second way is by noting Messiah's exalted position. Not only does he have the title of Lord, but where does he sit? He sits at the right hand of the throne of Yahweh. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. To sit at the right hand denotes that he acts with full authority and power of God to rule and to deliver. He has the, the authority of God, the power of God to rule and to, to deliver. And he'll sit there until the time that his enemies are destroyed, it says. Hebrews chapter 2 says we don't yet at this time see all of the enemies destroyed. We don't see this passage fulfilled yet. We're waiting for a time when all of his enemies will be made a footstool and they will all be destroyed. But that is yet to come. But we know from Acts chapter 2 that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, thus fulfilling this prophecy in Psalm 110 verse 1. Jesus is the one this was speaking of. Jesus knew that. Jesus was pressing that issue on the people there right in front of him. Now this verse, 
You need to get acquainted with Psalm 110 verse 1. Because Psalm 10 1 is the most quoted or alluded to verse in all of the New Testament. It's picked up by, by many authors throughout the New Testament. And it's because Jesus quoted it here in reference to himself, in defense of, of his title, in defense of his deity, that the early church and the apostles saw it as foundational to their theology. And again, on Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, he's preaching to there. Peter makes it a foundational point of his message there. You see, the religious leaders knew of the Davidic lineage of the Messiah. But they had not noted his exalted divinity. They knew that, that yeah, he's in the line of David. But they hadn't really come to grips with the fact that when the Messiah comes, he is the exalted Lord. And so this leads us then to the final convicting question that Jesus gives in verse 44. The convicting question. He brings the, the point home to his audience. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? In all of this, Jesus was forcing them to reckon with who he is and he was. He, here he speaks about the Messiah in the third person, right? He says, he says, who is the Christ? And how can the Christ be his son? And, but here, let's remember that everyone would have known that he is speaking about himself. We're here in the Passion Week, the final days of Jesus. There's been three and a half years of ministry that have led up to this point. And what took place just a couple days before? This is Tuesday. What took place on Sunday? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to the, to the singing the crowd, singing the praises of Psalm 118. The great messianic psalm saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They knew that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and many were worshiping him as such. And so when Jesus is talking about the Christ, about the anointed one, the Messiah, they know that he is talking about himself. But as we said, Jesus is not denying his Davidic lineage. He's emphasizing his divine lordship. He's not denying his Davidic lineage. He's emphasizing his divine lordship. Their prior conception of the Messiah as the son of David was accurate, but friends, it wasn't enough. We cannot pick and choose little pieces about Jesus. And to make him into what we want him to be, we've got to take the totality of Scripture's portrait of our Savior. And the question is, would they confess Jesus as Lord? Jesus made it very clear on that day. Listen, I might be the son of David. I might be, be, be the an, from the ancestry of David. But, but listen, I am David's Lord. I am the Lord. Will you confess me as Lord? And friends, this is the question that is placed before each one of us this morning as well. Will we confess Jesus as Lord? Luke doesn't record any response to Jesus' challenge. Verse uh, 45 goes on with a different teaching, different passage. And I believe he does this because it leaves it open for you and I, the readers, to say, what are, how are we going to respond to Jesus? What's our response? Are we going to confess him as Lord? Or are we going to miss it like the leaders of, his, of Jesus' day? And so I ask this question of you this morning. Do you confess Jesus as the divine Lord of your life? Jesus now sits as the exalted Lord at the right hand of the throne of, of God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, Matthew 28 says which means that he has authority over your life. You are not in charge. You do not set the agenda for your life. You deserve to give all submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. God has been patient, but he commands everyone everywhere to repent and to submit to his son, Jesus Christ the Lord. And so I ask you, have you done that? Have you submitted yourself to Jesus, the exalted Messiah. He will return to judge and he will put us on the hot seat and we will have to answer for how we have lived and whether we have confessed him in this life. But friends, the fact that you are here today and he has not returned means that he's been patient with you. And so I encourage you, do not let today pass without knowing for sure 
that you are destined for heaven with Christ. Do not trust in your own good deeds. Don't trust in some sort of good works. You've tried your hardest. Those won't cut it. You need to trust only in the finished work of Christ. This Jesus who will judge is the very Jesus who gave himself so that sinners like you and I can be saved and, and be saved from the punishment that we deserve. So I exhort you, turn to Jesus today and confess him as your Lord and your Savior. Do not continue to stiffen your neck and harden your heart as you have done. Church, as we conclude, we see here in this passage, Jesus is Lord. The one who goes back to Moses, the one who goes back to David, who teaches the Bible and is authoritative as he does so. He showed that the top Bible teachers of his day misinterpreted the scriptures. They were blinded by their own opinions and their own prejudices and their own sin. And the problem is, by misinterpreting the scriptures, they totally missed the glory of God, the power of God, and the lordship of his son, Jesus Christ. And so may we all be reminded of our commitment to Jesus Christ as our Lord, the one who rightly teaches teaches us the word of God, that we might live in that truth. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your son is indeed the one who rightly teaches the word of God. And we've learned from him this morning. We've learned about the resurrection. We've learned about the divinity of Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. And Father, we are, we are humbled and we recognize that we on our own have sought to live our own way. We have been rebellious against his authority and yet we know that if we have seen Christ, if we have submitted, bowed the knee before him, it is all because of your kindness and your grace to us. And so Father, I ask that this morning that in your mercy, you would please open blind eyes, that you would please humble proud hearts that you would enable those who are lost and hardened in their sin, O Lord, to see that the only way out, the only way of hope and life, hope not only for this life, but for the life to come is found in your Son. May they see your mercy in what he did and turn in repentance and faith. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.